but after a certain point, just the more and more shoots I did, I just kind of felt more confident, felt more comfortable being on set. There were a couple stories that Alex Pollock took a chance on me with, and even if Gersman was like, oh, maybe he's not right for her, he's, he's, he's still too young, still inexperienced, Alex Pollock would just be like, give it, give it to Lau, Lau can handle it. Let's send him off to San Francisco to shoot the story about burritos. That's awesome. Which is hard because, yeah, yeah like, you would think that that's a good story, but imagine shooting a burrito. <laughs> it's just a tortilla. My guest on this episode of Well Fed is Alex Lau, Bon Appetit staff photographer. Actually just flew in from uh, Los Angeles not to, what, three hours ago? Four three hours, hours ago? ago? Yeah. And uh, we're in a secluded, undisclosed uh, photography studio in the uh, Bonaparte campus. So Alex, thank you for uh, taking the time today, taking a short nap and then coming over to record this with me. Thanks for having me. What were you doing in LA? I was in LA just for a couple photo shoots with uh, a chef and out in Joshua Tree. And it just went a couple days and last minute shoot, but yeah, here I am. How was uh, Joshua Tree? Joshua Tree's great. It's very very surreal place i've never really spent much time in the desert so that was basically my first desert experience joshua tree pictures again with i don't know with any grand nature scape doesn't really do it justice sure yeah and once you're there you're just looking around it's dead quiet the air is dry there's no wind and these alien like looking joshua trees just looming over you yeah it's it's really it's rad you're originally born in queens mm-hmm and you moved at the age of 12 to San Francisco. 10, yeah, Ten. but close, yeah. Close. Yeah, nice. yeah. <laughs> were, were those early years in Queens before you moved, you know, have they been really influential in, in kind of your growing and, and since now you're back based in New York, you know, what, what was it like growing up in Queens? I definitely am glad I grew up in Queens. It's such a strange place. And I do have fond memories of it. I grew up in Woodside, um, which is off the 7 train. And growing up, it was a predominantly Irish and Puerto Rican community. And I was one of the few Asian people, but I also spent a lot of time out in Chinatown and Flushing. Yeah, New York's just a, a really weird place to grow up. And I think when you tell people you grew up in New York, they tend to immediately think, oh, you grew up in the West Village, you grew up in the Upper East Side. But there's five boroughs, there's so much more to it. And there's a lot that was in my life that I experienced in my life that, that it's just really hard to quantify in terms of how it made me the person I am. But yeah, I, there's a lot, like even from being in public schools and just being in the New York City public school system to being in the New York City Chinese community and just being close to the city, but not quite, it, it, was, it was a really good experience. Yeah, you know, what were you like as a kid, you know, in, in school? Were you uh, playing sports or anything like that? Were you taking pictures? You know, what, what was, who was Alex? Um, Little Alex. I think Alex was a jerk probably, but <laughs> growing up, I did, I uh, competitively swam for basically 10 years. And I did that in New York City. And when I was, I moved to California and also continued to swim, but also picked up the saxophone and did a number of high school sports, was on the speech and debate team. I feel like I was a lot busier as a high school student versus an adult. I don't know why I did so many things, uh, did AP class and all that, but I, I don't think that I was 
particularly destined to become a photographer. I don't think anybody ever saw me and like, Alex Lau, he's got to be a photographer <laughs> in New York City. Got that creative eye exactly. since the bold age of 10. Exactly. What informed the move to San Francisco, out to California from, uh, from New York? I think my parents just needed a little change of pace, and uh, they, they moved to, from China to New York in 1977 or 1975, and at that point in 2003, they'd been there for a while. So, you know, they probably wanted more space, better weather. New York City kind of takes a toll on you after a little bit. So. Yeah, I'm here. I grew up mostly in Jersey and lived, you know, in the area now in Jersey City for four years, and yeah. I'm already like, okay, when, yeah. when, when am I escaping? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you moved out to San Francisco. Did you have any family out there already? Is it just, just your parents, just you? We had uh, an aunt that lived out. Uh, close by San Francisco and San Leandro. Um, but besides that, we had more family out here. And uh, you were growing up, you said you uh, you competitively swam, mm -hmm. which is a surprise because, I mean, for those of you who are listening, obviously can't, Alex is sitting right in front of me, and Alex is a, is a very big guy. <laughs> He's a big dude. I'm a, small, I'm a small guy, but Alex is a big dude. And um, you, you competitively swam. You were on the speech and debate team. Speech and debate team. I've always, like, you know, I played a few sports in high school, and there was always the teachers that were actively, proactively trying to get you to join like the speech and debate team. So I, I was never really a scholar growing up. What did you do in speech and debate? Um, uh, there's a different kinds or different formats of speech and debate. Um, I can't really remember all of them, but they're the ones that I participated in were Lincoln Douglas debate, Congress, and impromptu. And basically, Lincoln Douglas was a, a team debate with a duo and I had a partner and we would basically be assigned a topic 30 minutes beforehand and just say, okay, for today's proposition, you are against this proposition. Example, lollipops are delicious. You're going to spend 30 <laughs> minutes debating why lollipops aren't delicious. Um, and there's Congress, which is basically replicating what it's like being in the house and people getting together trying to pass a bill or reasons to not pass a bill. And there's impromptu, which is very similar, but another improv-based, last-minute topic, and you're supposed to, you know, give a whole spiel on it. Yeah. And in that time that they give you the topic, and, like, is there time to think of your argument? Like, do you, you have, have any... 30 minutes. Okay, so, so before you actually start presenting. Yes. Okay, because yeah. I could maybe give two good reasons why lollipops are delicious, <laughs> and then maybe one reason why they're not. Sure. In, like, 30 seconds, and then yeah. I'm flat. Yeah. There have been, there, were, there are certain formats where you do have maybe two minutes, but yeah, the one I did, Lincoln Douglas, was a 30-minute prep. Going through high school, you were active, you were playing sports, you were doing extracurricular things. When was it that you started to kind of have an interest in maybe imagery or kind of creativity? Like, when did you realize that you started shifting focus onto things that weren't sports or, you know, speech and debate club? Probably when I was 14 or 15. So early on in high school, I was living with my parents and my older brother, by the time I graduated college, but he was just staying with us. And basically whatever he did, I thought was super cool. He, a lot of his movie tastes and music tastes influenced who I was. I, I would find like some 80s mixtape he made and I would listen to that religiously over and over again. <laughs> I found- Do you that, remember any of the songs that stand out on, the, on those mixtapes? Oh, for sure. That Eurythmic song, Hall & Oates. <laughs> yeah, some Fleetwood Mac. So, and I there still listen go. to all that. Totally. Um, yeah, he, he had a, uh, an issue or a copy of The World Tenenbaums, Bombs, and that was the first Wes Anderson film I watched. I'm like, wow, movies are cool. He likes this, so I like this. But I just remember that 
in his, I would sneak in his room a lot when he was gone because I'm <laughs> nosy little brother. And I found a film camera and I always saw that. It was always my, I was too scared to touch it. But I, I had my eye on it and I was very, very fascinated by it. And I think at some point I just worked up the courage and asked, hey, can I borrow this or can I shoot with this? And it wasn't a particularly good film camera. I think it was just your sta standard mid-consumer Canon film body, but he gave it to me and, and I was in love with it. And I would just bought rolls of film and just would shoot my friends, shoot San Francisco, bike over to the nearby Walgreens, develop my film and just get really excited and like wait an hour and just like open everything up and just be so ecstatic. That kind of developed into shooting more and more. And I made my own Flickr account. <laughs> Flickr. Yeah, yeah. Flickr, Flickr. yeah. Eventually, I, I loved the film, shooting with my film camera so much, I also wanted to go beyond and get my own digital DSLR. So at the time, I was working as a high school tutor. So I saved up all my money, bought my own DSLR off Best Buy or something like that, and just kept shooting. And that kind of turned into using my camera to shoot for the high school paper. It's funny because I was on the football team, but at the same time, I was also in the marching band. So that meant okay. I would play for the football team at halftime, play, put on my marching band clothes and play my saxophone. But also other times I would be shooting game on the sidelines. Um, How'd that work? You were shooting, so. It's really complicated, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, there was often some overlap, but other times I'd be shooting the varsity team or the JV team and just switch it off. Sure. Um, but I ended up shooting a lot of high school sports and that was my initial pull into being more serious about photography. I just like sports photography. I like sports and I would shoot any, any team that we had. And so women's soccer team, uh, tennis, basketball. I feel like with any high school team, high school sports program, people tend to be pr pretty big on it. So it, it was always like a good environment to be in and shoot these fun games. And yeah, that's what got me into it. You're switching off between the marching band, you're playing football. At some point, did you just say that, like, you know, I'm way more into photography now and slowly just kind of waned off of doing more, doing sports and doing more photo work? Not in high school, no. Um, when I was in high school, I just, again, I just did everything. Mm -hmm. But I, I did like photography, and it was fun, and it was a good creative outlet in addition to playing the saxophone and just you know, studying jazz, but it was just, I, I liked being visual and I liked taking pictures of my friends or, or just trying to get better as a photographer. I never at any point thought, oh, this could become a career. I just felt it was fun and it, it was a good expression of myself. But yeah, it, it, was never, it was never something that I thought I could take seriously. What were the steps after high school? You know, what were you, what were you thinking? You, you started gaining you know, uh, your, your footing in photography, you started really enjoying it. What was your next move? So that's the thing. After, so I actually took music very seriously. I played the saxophone ever since I was 10 through 18 and I rehearsed for hours a day. And I, I was in all these jazz programs in the city that were all state programs, like being the best in California, being the best in San Francisco. And I actually really wanted to pursue a career in jazz. Um, so in addition to applying to a bunch of UC state schools, I also applied to a number of music schools and I auditioned for all of them. And I heavily considered being, being a musician, but then I, I got into the Berkeley School of Music, got into NYU, 
gone to the Hart School in Connecticut and a couple others. But I, I think the most jarring moment was when I went, got into these schools based on my audition tapes and, and auditioned in person. But once I visited the campus and met a number of these music students, I just kind of had this clicking moment and immediately just knew like, I don't have what it takes to be a musician. I felt like that I was very good at emulating good jazz. I didn't think I was be able, I would be able to create good jazz by myself and create original content. And at that moment, I, I just figured, I also wasn't good enough to get full rides. I would get half rides, half scholarships. Hey, that's or, pretty dope. Yeah, or, or <laughs> uh, small, small grants, but I, I immediately, yeah, from, as, an, as a 17 year old, I had the foresight to realize I didn't want to put myself into debt for something that one, I wasn't super passionate about, and two, that I didn't think would be a particularly viable career. And so I, I kind of pushed that aside. I got into a number, yeah, I got into some UC, University of California schools, and I just didn't really want to stay in California. I had definitely had an itch to go back to the East Coast. I found this college called Emerson College. At that point, even though music was no longer a thing, I I was for some reason pulled to journalism. I I loved magazines growing up. I loved reading newspapers. It just felt like a very very appealing career to me. I I don't think I I was thinking as as large in terms of let me pursue a career, but I knew it was interesting to me, so sure. uh, I wanted to get a journalism major. I want to I want to step back real quick to when you had the decision to cut off music in a sure. sense. Was there any reaction like, you know, obviously I I've had a I had a similar uh, moment when I was looking for art schools and I was going to very particular art schools that were just art, just visual arts, just design and as a younger kid I was just like I don't connect with any of these people and I decided to go do community for a bit and and, you know, I, I found that my mom, even though I made her drive like eight hours to go visit these schools, and I told her after an hour of sitting in a room, I was like, we need to go. We need to get at her. I don't like this place. She was okay. She was yeah. a little pissed at first. Yeah. But, like, you know, the reaction, I'm curious, was there anything like that from your family or anything? Was Were they kind of baffled a little bit? Or, you know, were they super supportive in, in trying to pursue something and or navigate what you were really interested in? I don't think my parents were particularly upset. They, they had invested a lot of time into my childhood and into being a musician. But they also, also invested a lot of time into my swimming, which I was also good at, but you know, after a certain point, as you can see, I don't really have the traditional build for a swimmer and everybody else starts becoming 6'4". <laughs> and as hard as I can try, you know, they, they just outreach me. We're both still waiting for that growth spurt. Exactly, it'll <laughs> kick in, it'll kick in. But uh, swimming didn't pan out, but even though they had invested a lot of time, and music didn't didn't kick in, but I think they more so viewed it viewed it as it wasn't specifically about music or swimming that would make or break me as a human or a person. They they were just like, okay, we're using these outlets for him to develop perseverance and what it takes to develop a skill and to get good at something. So when I told them that I didn't really want to be a musician, I think they understand understood, but I think they also were kind of relieved, uh, you know. As uh, Asian parents traditionally want their kids to be in some form of STEM, so whether it be science or be a mathematics major or be pre-med, I think they supported my music, but they were also 
they also realized like we don't want our son to be homeless. So <laughs> sure. they, they were pretty relieved. But at the same time, when I told them that I didn't want to be a musician and instead I wanted to be a journalist, they, they were <laughs> not exactly Still pleased. Still them. <laughs> but I think they thought it would be a phase that I would grow out of, which I did kind of, but they supported me nonetheless. And both my brothers, not, none of us have particularly traditional careers. My middle brother, Carson, he's a designer at Google. My older brother, Roger, he's a chief of staff for Senator Elizabeth Warren. So politics and design and photography, we don't really have the traditional uh, jobs. That it was like n none of you are STEM. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Our parents didn't particularly quite <laughs> expect any of this, but here we are. That's funny. So you decided to go to Emerson. You started to pursue, was it photojournalism or was it just strictly journalism kind of program no again so the, the notion of me ever becoming a photographer still not there was inconceivable <laughs> I, I had to like kind of entertain it and, and tried to see if there were any photo programs I could enter and they all said to submit a portfolio and I thought none of this is is submittable no one would want any of these pictures so I just didn't apply so I applied to the print, print journalism major at Emerson cool yeah. What was the what was the program? I mean, you moved from San Francisco back to the East Coast to Boston, where there's snow, there's all yeah. four seasons. Yeah. They're all pretty, you know, pretty harsh. Yeah. I wouldn't say that people complain about Boston, but then <laughs> I, you know, I have a few friends from Chicago that are like, Boston's got nothing on yeah. us. What was it like out there? I mean, my my oldest brother Roger, he lives out there, so I already had a couple, a little experience being out there, but. It was very, very, very different from San Francisco. But I think at that point in my life, I was ready for a bigger change. And I had already seen New York. But Boston was, is, Boston is a very, very unique place. It's basically a college town in the form of a city. I think there were over 100 colleges there. So you can definitely feel that, not, not academia, academia is not the right word, but you can definitely feel the young energy in the city. But it's also funny, the, the juxtaposition of how the brightest minds are there in Boston, and whether they be they're, they're at MIT or Harvard or any, a, a number of the other colleges, but also the townies of Boston that hang out in Dunkin' Donuts and just kind of scream <laughs> at you while wearing Red Sox hats. It's a very fascinating place. What was the, uh, how was the program then? Did you, did you kind of go through it? Did you enjoy it? Was it, did you have mixed feelings about it? The program was great. I, I feel, I feel it was at, with anything, it, it's what you make of it. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate to have a couple of great professors that let me annoy them in their in their uh, in their office hours and just like bug them. I'm like, how can I make this project better? How can I make make the story better? Um, and they were very very supportive of anything that I pitched. What were some of those pitches? So. Funnily enough, even though I never really had a photo major, for the first two years I didn't really photograph anything. But approaching my junior year, I took a multimedia course and then I took a photojournalism course. And for each of those stories, for the photojournalism course, I pitched a story about the Cambodian community of Lynn, Massachusetts, which is sounds pretty normal, but Lynn is I don't know if you're familiar, is just kind of a non-remarkable small town, a little outside of Massachusetts, a little depressing, um, but it's also home to the third largest Cambodian community outside of Cambodia. Wow. Which I had no idea about. 
and now I do. Yeah, now you know <laughs> that. Um, I kind of found out about it through uh, somebody. I, I heard someone use the phrase Cambodian gangs. And like, watch out for those Cambodian gangs in Lynn. And that's just a combination of words that requires a double take. I'm like, wait, wait what, what does that mean? Cambodian gangs? So I asked about it, found out that there's a total hidden Cambodian community in Lynn. And I used this opportunity to investigate and learn more about this community. I, I know nothing, I knew nothing about Cambodian culture. So for basically a year, I dedicated my life to just kind of getting to know the town, getting to know the Cambodian community. I would go to the Lynn's Cambodian temple. I would interview Cambodian gang members. I would, one time I got invited to a funeral at the very last minute and they encouraged me to photograph it. But yeah, so that, that, that uh, there's a, so many people that I interviewed, so many people that I photographed and so many people that are willing to take their time just like tell me their life story. So that was the first larger project that I, uh, just kind of immersed myself in. And for my other class, I, I'm, so I'm a competitive weightlifter, a powerlifter, sorry. But I was, I'm getting, I'm going to ask you about that later. <laughs> <laughs> At the time I, I was, I was more casual about that, but I, I was still, I still had an interest and I found out that there's this nonprofit in Boston called inner city weightlifting. And they, they, they taught Olympic weightlifting and they use that as a program, as a means to take Boston's worst juvenile delinquents and kids that are frequently in trouble or even even adults and they use Olympic weightlifting as a means to help them get their life back on track, teach them, give them activity, keep them busy, but also help them buy for jobs, help them, you know, avoid getting back in jail. And I also followed that. And that was also a really great opportunity. That was a little less than a year, but it was also it, it was great. And that was the moment I realized I really liked featuring marginalized communities, both of those communities, like juvenile delinquents of Boston, the Cambodian community in Lynn, nobody really knows about them. Mainstream media doesn't really touch on either of those subjects, or especially a nonprofit that does something like that. And that was when I realized, yeah, I wanted to give a voice to people that didn't really have one. While you're also doing the program, I noticed in your kind of experience, your career experience, that you just you've done a shit ton of internships. Yeah. You've done yeah. a lot. Like you went from interning to being like an editorial assistant mm -hmm. and then you went to interning again to being like an, another, like you had an internship position, internship position, and then a bunch of like, what was that, you know, how was that process? What were you navigating? What were you trying to figure out when you were doing this? So yeah, I, I, again, I am where I am, but when people ask me, Oh, how do you, how do you get here? I have no idea. I just had a lot of different interested interests and some of them panned out and some of them didn't for my, for the first two years of college, Immediately after starting my first semester, I got an internship at the State House of uh, Boston, Massachusetts State House, and I was in the Legislative Affairs Department. <laughs> I, I don't know why I did that. Uh, I, did, I, I think I just needed an internship experience, and I thought, oh, maybe politics might be something that could interest me. And after a semester, I just knew that it wasn't quite my thing. I was glad I had that. And uh, after my second semester, I just focused on class. And during the summer, I, I still knew I need an internship. I can't just go home in San Francisco and just bum around and, I don't know, go to the YMCA or something. <laughs> so I applied to a number of internships. And here's the thing. It's kind of like being in the service industry. 
or being in retail, everybody requires four years of experience for a job that, for an entry level position. So I applied to maybe 30 internship positions. I didn't hear back from any. Because I, I only had one internship on my, on my resume. Yeah. And my other jobs were high school tutor or like camp counselor. I had a camp counselor on my resume at one point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. We all, we all no did. No shame. We all did. <laughs> and nobody got back to me. And the school year was approaching to an end. And I saw a posting for Esquire magazine, fashion intern. I saw it. I, I figured, okay, shoot my shot. Uh, what's the worst that can happen? They just won't answer it. Just like the other 30 people that I emailed. Uh, I sent my resume and I said, I did have an interest in menswear. So I, I, like, I like fashion. I like menswear. I figured, okay, this is cool. And I get to be in New York City. I sent an email basically saying, here are all my favorite blogs. Here's what I like about streetwear. Here's my passion. I can definitely do this. Just sent out the email and figured nobody's emailing me back. Four hours later, I got an email. Can you come in tomorrow? For an interview, stoked. Yeah, keep in mind I'm in Jumping. Boston. <laughs> yeah, I'm in Boston. So I, can you come in? And they said, can you come in tomorrow? Yeah, to and, New York City. Wow. They don't know that I'm in Boston. Sure. So I said yes. <laughs> I borrowed my friend's suit and put on a tie and just got some dress shoes and thank God for the Chinatown Boston bus, which is the <laughs> the route that runs from, between New York and Boston. Yep. For at the time it was ten dollars. So I got my ten dollars, got on the bus sat there for four hours, showed up to the New York Public Library, changed into, changed from my normal clothes to a suit. Clutch call, good exactly. call. Yeah. I, I was, like I said, I was at a wedding yesterday. I should have brought like a number of shirts because yeah. I was just sweating. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I just need a spot. And the thing is, it's it's hard to find a place, if you don't, if you're just visiting New York for six hours, or it's hard to have a home base. So oh, yeah. I just kind of uh, had my backpack, with my with my uh, interview clothes in there and my res in my fold resume folder, changed into my clothes, changed into the suit, and I put everything in a bag and I hid it underneath the toilet of the New York City uh, Public Library. What? Because I didn't have a place to put it in there. I didn't want to show up to the interview holding a bag sure. with my things. Like you're living exactly. <laughs> around the corner or yeah. something. So I I, I, snuck, I hid it under there, took uh took the train over to the Hearst Building, uh, right by Columbus Circle, and showed up, just just kind of talked my way in, uh, into getting in the, the internship. I, I didn't quite realize what it was. I just knew that, hey, this internship, and it's involved fashion intern. I don't know what that means. It's for a big time New York City magazine. Let's do it. Yeah. The, at the time, the assistant fashion editor was Michael Stefanov. I think he still might be there, but he took a chance on me. He said, hey, you don't really have experience, but you seem to know enough and I think you'll be a hard worker being in the fashion closet and okay, we'll hire you. You start next week. So I'm back to Boston. School year ended. Hit the ground running through that summer. Just had my first taste of the New York magazine world. Did you move to the, did you move to New York? Yeah. So my, I was very fortunate that my aunt uh, lived in Brooklyn or lives in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of crashed on her couch for the summer, which I did for the next three summers every time I internship inter had an internship in, in New York so uh, yeah I and keep it uh, again like at that time internships weren't really paid no I yeah. yeah my first like three were just unpaid exactly so and at that point I had to convince someone to pay me $50 per, <laughs> for like the day yeah but I was just glad to be there I was yeah, like totally. okay you want to have me here you want to invite me to your fancy building for sure. in Midtown so I 
I did the internship. I was running the fashion closet, which basically is just a place where people, the magazines source clothing loans that they use for magazines, mm-hmm. or magazine shoots. So it's $10,000 suits and like $5,000 pants and jackets. And I was in charge of making sure everything was in its place, was returned at the, at the right time, was uh, delivered at the right time, was was in, at the right shoots. And have you ever watched Devil Wears Prada? Yes, but like not anything, not, not recently. Sure. So it's kind of similar to that. Like the assistant, I, I yeah. don't know the actress's name. I was kind of no like, Streep's assistant, Anne Hathaway. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Anne Hathaway. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's basically like you're in charge of very expensive clothing, and people are always yelling at you, and you're always going like running back and forth between photo shoots and grabbing coffee. I, I grabbed a lot of coffee. Grabbed, took a lot of people's dry cleaning. Got yelled at by a lot of PR companies about missing fancy like Louis Vuitton jackets, but it was it was cool. It was great, and I, it felt fast paced, and it was exactly what I imagined. It was very much like Devil Wears Prada, except I guess people in Devil Wears Prada were probably meaner. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was. I, I I think I got to work on a bunch of photo shoots. I did a photo shoot with Ryan Gosling. And Whoa! Like, yeah, so that was that, that's a very New York City moment. I I was like, wow, I'm how old was I? I was like, I'm like 19 years old, 18 years old, and um, on set with Ryan Gosling, like feeding his dog apples because oh. he needs to be kept busy. You while pet Ryan Gosling's dog. I did. His I think you, you've probably achieved the dream of many, many people. It was great. He's a giant <laughs> muppet. Yeah, but it was moments like that. Like, wow, this is crazy, and just like seeing. Again, the magazine lifestyle seemed very like glitzy and glamorous. Less so now, but like back then, I was like, "Wow, this is this is the, the the peak of New York City lifestyle." Like being a fashion editor is so cool, and wearing all these clothes is so great. So that really just I, I caught the bug after that internship. And this was one of the first ones, right? This is like one this of the first. This was literally my first New York City internship, and but before that, I was just a legislative affairs. Uh, intern in Boston. So wow, politics yeah. to fashion. Total fluke. Again, like <laughs> there was no plan. There's no system. I just it's just someone decided. The one person decided to respond to my inquiry, out of everybody else. So the, this Esquire one wasn't even in a photo. It was more fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, you then went on to do kind of more edit fo- photo internships. So one or two. I for thought, the next I few think. years, I actually wanted to continue being in menswear so after that i was at nylon guys mm-hmm. as a as another fashion intern in the next summer and very different vibe where was like esquire is very you know old school everyone wears nice suits and it's very gentlemanly and like you know british influence clean very clean, clean. Cut. nylon guys is just like the total opposite punk was, rock yeah the, the the office was in soho and it, it was just like yeah, a lot, a lot more grunge, uh, way less of a budget, but it, it was a very different en- energy in the entire, the other end of the spectrum. But I also love that. And uh, after Nylon Guys, I, I did a, a little time at Complex, I did a little time at GQ, and then I did work for a small menswear startup called Boylson Trading Company, which was a subsidiary of Karma Loop which at the time was like a big brand in Boston for fashion. Yeah. Um, Carmelo was big. I remember yeah. like getting coupon codes. Exactly. And clicking like on like all the new releases. Yeah. I, ne- I, I think I bought like one hat <laughs> and I, th- I think I still get the email shout yeah. out. I spent a lot of time on the website looking at clothes that I couldn't afford. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Same. Yeah. But I, uh, I ended up working for Boston Training Company 
where I was uh, also a fashion intern and a lot of folding clothes. I did some copywriting for their products. I helped out on photo shoots. And I think that was the last fashion internship. Eventually, I just realized that as much as I love menswear, I didn't really realize, I didn't really have a specific goal. I didn't want to write for menswear. Uh, I didn't want to be a stylist. And I didn't think I'd be good enough to be a photographer. So I'm like, okay, what, what's, my, what's my end goal? What, what am I doing? And it was that moment, I, I was also kind of getting burnout. Being in fashion clothes, it was fun, but after two years, I was just like, how many shirts can I iron? How, how many more things can I steam before I, I just, I'm sick of this? And I was just kind of sick of it at that point. I know you just said two years, but in my mind, I, I thought this was over like a four-year time period. And I think that's just an example was, of like yeah. how fast-paced yeah. it can seem. Because yeah. I'm like, yeah, there's a lot. That's a, You're doing a lot, man. Yeah. Like, that's crazy. It was, Burnout, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. It was it was a lot in like, I think it was closer to like three years. But yeah, after, after three years, I was like, okay, I'm good. Especially because I wasn't getting paid. Mm -hmm. Um... Yeah, I, I have very specific memories of being uh, an intern in New York City, not having money, skateboarding from Midtown all the way down to East Broadway because I couldn't afford to take the subway. And that one stop <laughs> on East Broadway doesn't have anybody at the turnstile. So I would just skateboard all the way down there and just hop the turnstile and take the train back to Brooklyn. Um, I would, I would like wait for free events that uh, that had food and just like just <laughs> shovel everything down and pay Tupperware exactly two dollar halal food I, it, it was a very yeah it, living in the moment I was like I was like okay this sucked but it, it was I look back fondly on it I'm like okay like I didn't have money and I didn't really know what I was doing but I was having a lot of fun and just learning what it was like to be kind of in this world in the New York City fashion world the New York City magazine uh, world but yeah, after a certain point, I just realized I wanted to move on. So it's almost like a third time now. You're kind of having this moment of, yeah. this isn't what I want to do. Exactly. And you just kind of like somewhat severing, you know, you're like, okay, now I need to refigure it out and navigate exactly. this. What was uh, what was going through your mind at that point? Where were, where were you going to go next? Well, honestly, at that point, I never really viewed it as I'm resetting or I'm restarting. I was just, let me use the experience I've had and, and accumulate it to bring me to whatever thing I want to do next. And at that point in journalism, I, would, I loved writing. I was very into writing and, and uh, I loved all my creative writing workshops. And I was like, okay, maybe I could pursue a career in nonfiction. But at the same time, I also really loved public radio. So I was very, very interested in, you know, working for NPR um, or working for The Globe. And <laughs> again, I applied to the NPR and The Globe and nobody got back to me. I got I applied to NPR and I got got past a couple rounds and I was actually very set on okay, like I'll I'll be at NPR in DC for the summer and it'll be great and I'll, you know, build build on from there. But I got interviewed twice and the third time they said, "Yeah, thanks but no thanks." And it maybe wasn't a sign, but I just kind of viewed that as like, okay, like cool. Maybe public radio isn't for me. I was very heartbroken by that though. But once again, here we are uh, two, three years after my email to Esquire, I was about to start my summer, uh, approaching my senior year, just wrapped up my junior year, and I was just scouring the internet for a bunch of any internship. Nobody's getting back to me, despite having a lot more on my resume, which is weird. Sure, yeah. And I see a posting for Bon Appetit photo internship. It's like, hey guys, I have all this experience you've been telling me about. Like, exactly. what's the deal? Yeah. So I see the Bon Appetit 
magazine photo internship. I know nothing about Bon Empty magazine. I'm like, hey, I like photographs. I, I, I like that's cool. So food and photo. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, she was actually very into food, and she told me, like, hey, you know, Bon Appetit's a big deal. I'm like, really? <laughs> okay, like I'll, I'll apply. Uh, so I, I applied, and I didn't expect to hear back, and. Once again, four hours later, I got another email. Can you come in tomorrow? People in New York City, in New York City, tend to think that everybody lives in New York City. They, they're like, "Oh, just come in." I'm like, yeah. "Okay." So I took another ten dollar bus. bus email ride. was at eight p.m. They're like, "Hey, uh, you want to come in in, yeah. uh, in an hour?" Yeah, exactly. No problem. Took another Chinatown bus. Hid uh, my all my stuff under, underneath the toilet at the library. <laughs> again. Yeah, again. That was my home base. That's great. For for any unpaid intern. Uh, interns out there or people that want to interview that's the place to use your as your home base choose a different toilet though different toilet definitely <laughs> for sure it wasn't the we've, get, we've blown the spot exactly at this point. it's the third one on the right <laughs> so i interviewed there and once again they looked at my resume and like this is cool you've inter- interned at a lot of places but you have zero food experience uh, or photo experience, but honestly, because you have a lot of in, uh, experience with national New York City-based magazines, we want to hire you. So they took me on board, and that was my first experience at Connie Nast. And once again, uh, they, they gave me uh, the option of t- doing the internship for college credit, which is basically code for pay $3,000 to work for free. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want to do that. So like, okay, well, we can make you an undocumented intern so I was like great cool <laughs> so in the eyes of Connie Nass I was never I was never an intern that was my first time in food and it was really really nice it's it was so different from fashion and everybody's just so much nicer there's a lot less stress there's a lot less yelling but also it's people are people were giving me more opportunities of still uh being on shoots but I learned what good food was. I learned what a good food photograph was. I, I spent a lot more time around creatives versus just being fashion. So I was like, oh, I, I met more designers. I met the art director. I met photo directors. And didn't take a single photo, but I, I learned a lot more about what goes into making a magazine look good. And I left that internship just with a full heart and just knowing that, wow, food food publishing is might be something I really want to pursue. This is much better than than fashion and i think my end goal at that point was like okay wrapped up my internship i my immediate goal is to be an assistant photo editor that'd be cool i could definitely see myself being a photo editor. i don't think i'm good enough to be a photographer but i i think i could produce stories in retrospect, like no i can't I'm, I'm a very messy and um i don't have i, I everything's always just not not together so i cannot produce things <laughs> But so I left that one to be an assistant photo editor. I went back to Boston for my final year and I got a, a digital internship with Boston Magazine, which basically meant that I was helping write stories for the website and take photos for the website, which is great. Um, no other magazine or in print would ever give an intern an opportunity to write stories or write and shoot stories uh, for, for their magazine. So for an entire semester, I basically went, did a bunch of random assignments. I would cover iPod releases. I would go cover these restaurants. And they were like, oh, you, you, you work for a food magazine, right? Yeah, can you shoot and write about this food? I'm like, yeah, yeah, like overhead shot of bowl of food next to a window. I can do that. 
So I, I uh, actually did my first story, first big story with Boston Magazine, and I pitched them, hey, I want to do a Vietnamese pho roundup of Boston. And honestly, I, I never really eaten pho, but I was, or eaten good pho in Boston, but I was just like, okay, this is something that could be visually appealing and could probably do well on the internet. I picked eight pho restaurants just based off Yelp in all in different neighborhoods, and I picked a, a specific kind of pho for each one. And I biked over to each one, each restaurant, took a photo of it, ate it, and got all the photographs, put it together, and just wrote a little roundup. I'm like, hey, these are the places you should check out. And it actually did really, really well. It's most traffic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> thank, thank, thank God for internet traffic. But it did well enough to the point where the people at Boston Magazine were like, this is really great, let's, ha let's have you focus, maybe do more explosive food stuff. Uh, so I would, mainly shoot a lot of restaurants and that was actually really good training I, I had no idea what I was doing but I'm like okay I have a camera Why not? Um, figure it out on the way exactly so this whole time as I'm doing this this is my first semester of senior year I still had graduation on mine I was like I need a job so <laughs> I would email our photo director from Monomity at the time Alex Pollock I was like hey uh, I'm graduating soon if there's any positions that open up let me know no response <laughs> um, which is funny because like Peace. at the end of my internship it's like keep in touch like let, let me know of course of course um, as we were saying before it's just like people maybe it's more so New York yeah. they're just like their inbox is just like just bum rushed with emails exactly. constantly they're just like uh, that one's gonna disappear so soon I never really understood why people did that, did that, but honestly, now as a person that works for a magazine, like lives here, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm I'm terrible with answering emails. But I, I shot an email, no response. Every 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 three weeks, I send her another follow up, or every month, and I'm like, hey hey, here's some stuff, here's some food photographs I've taken. If there's any assistant photo photo editor job open, I will gladly come in and interview for it. No response. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm just gonna keep emailing her. <laughs> Uh, maybe she's seen it, maybe not. At one point, I showed up to Four Times Square, the old Condé Nast building, and I was like, hey, can I see Alex Pollock? She didn't answer, answer the phone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's but, crazy. Yeah. So you're just persistent in that. Yeah, I, you say persistent, I say dumb, but you know. <laughs> I, yeah, so I, I focused on Boston Magazine. Uh, after winter break, I came back to Boston Magazine to kind of keep doing the same thing, except this time they just brought on a uh, restaurant and food editor his name is Chris Hughes and we just worked together and just like again focus exclusively on restaurants and food uh, for the website it was great it just helped me build up a, a large food portfolio and every time I shot a, a bunch of new things I was sending it over to Alex Pollock with no response but yeah as as graduation started getting closer I started applying to a bunch of jobs I didn't really know what I wanted to do um, I teach for America recruited me uh, and, and I went in for a bunch of interviews and I was like, okay, this could be cool. This could be a great viable option. After a certain point, I just realized I, I, want, I, I wanted to take the job at Teach for America because I thought it, it would be a cool thing on paper. But I realized after submitting teaching plans and like meeting a bunch of people, I, was not, I, I wouldn't be a good teacher. Mm -hmm. And especially... The whole system of Teach for America is like take a bunch of younger students and send them to schools that, you know, experienced teachers couldn't even really handle. So if I'm if I'm not good at teaching and I don't really want to teach, why would I want to set myself up for an incredibly difficult situation? So I, I kind of pass on that, and I applied to Food and Wine magazine, 
as a production assistant, which at the time I didn't really know what that meant. Yeah. Um, but basically just means like, now I know it just means you're doing a lot of clerical work and like doing production, like shipping photos onto the magazine. But it's a way, it's a way in. It's a, a way sense. in. I, it, it, I didn't think of it as like, Oh, this is a great gig. I was like, I'm, if I do this, I'm in the magazine. Yeah. So I went in, interviewed, and they offered me the job. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, I think, I think I'll, I'll do this. I'm moving to New York, and uh, I'll just be a production assistant at this food magazine. This is still in food publishing. And I went back to Boston. This is, again, maybe two weeks out from graduation. I'm like, great, I have a job lined up. Sure. I get uh, a call from this New York City number. I'm like, who is this? I answer the phone, and it's the photo director, Alex Pollack. And she's like, hey, yes. how are you? And she, I'm like, I'm, I'm good. And she's like, I'm so sorry I haven't answered any of your emails. It's just like, it's always so busy. I'm like, I totally understand. It's like, what's what's up? She's like, so I, I, I've got all your pictures and everything you sent uh, over the course of this, this uh, the few, this year and- The last six months. Yeah, the last six <laughs> months. And like, I, we, it looks really good. And uh, we actually just opened up a new position uh, for a staff photographer role at the magazine and it's kind of a junior role but you know it, it's we're looking for somebody to do video and photo uh, for the magazine for the, for the website would you be open to coming in and talking about that talking to our editors about that and I'm like absolutely yes yeah 100% so okay. <laughs> can you come in tomorrow <laughs> so hopped in the Chinatown bus <laughs> and I love this yeah. like repeat oh, so many endless bus rides on that specific route um, but you got to get there, you know, exactly. you got to do it. Yeah. Even but, if you got to wake up at like three in the morning. Yeah. At no point did I, was I ever like pissed about it. I'm like, this no. is what I have to do. Like, this is what I have to do to get here. Fine. Uh, went in to the Bon Appetit office and it was kind of nice because I don't know, maybe only six months prior I was in the office and I knew the culture and I knew the people. Uh, so I, I, it, I wasn't particularly nervous. So I interviewed with Alex and then I interviewed with the deputy editor, Scott Simon. And they're like, okay, we'll, we'll let you know in about like two months-ish if, if this job opens up. I'm like, ah, here's the thing. I, um, <laughs> I just accepted a job at Food and Wine. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, like you called me, but like you called me like three hours after. I literally I walked in the door with the, with yeah. the, accept <laughs> the acceptance offer. Exactly. And they're like, oh. And they're like, uh, let us make a couple calls. And I left the interview and I was on my way back to Boston on the bus and they, Alex called me and she was like, Hey, can you come in actually tomorrow to talk to the editor in chief, Adam Rappaport? And I'm like, tomorrow in New York. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, all right. So I was on the bus and I had to like beg the bus driver to let me off the bus. I'm like, please, please, please. I, I can't get on this bus. And, and he was like, he's so pissed. I got off somewhere in like Queens. Okay. And so you're still in New York. It's okay. I was still in New York. So I, I took the train back, but I, I stayed in New York and I interviewed and basically within a span of a week, a, w a week before graduation, I went from not really knowing what I was doing and maybe being a production assistant at a food magazine to being a staff photographer for Bon Appetit. Damn. And yeah, it, it was very weird. And like, even during the interviews, it was a lot of just me saying yes to things that I was hugely underqualified for. They're like, yeah, you, like, you photograph, right? I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, shot web stories and like oh do you shoot you know shoot with strobes and lights i'm like of course you do studio that's shoots i'm like easy yeah all the time <laughs> they're like oh and do you shoot video i'm like 
like all the, it, I work, I've worked on so many projects. That's why can, I only shoot, that's why you only see images and why I only use natural light at the exactly. moment. Because I'm so over those things. And like you can edit, edit videos. I'm like, yep. <laughs> so I got hired and basically like my first, honestly, first six months, I was like, number one, my goal is don't get fired. Number two, I was just like Googling everything someone asked sure. me. I'm like, oh, can you like this? I'm like, yeah, of course. And I was just like frantically Turn like, around with your phone. Yeah, I'm like, that's so easy. And I would just Google for four hours on how to do something. I want to break down some of these things. So this whole kind of last bit has been in a span of like six months, right? So yes. like when you started at the Boston Magazine. So September 2013. You're getting ready to graduate come what, the spring semester? Yeah, May 2014. Okay, so that's that's six seven months um you got a job Mm -hmm. at food and wine and you were able i mean well before that you were just consistently emailing alex you know hey just staying in touch like this is what i'm doing which you know i think i've fallen off of doing that but it's good to stay in touch with like your professors and and people that you've worked with just to see how they're doing what they're up to nowadays and it's so easy now Mm -hmm. you know between like email and instagram whatever it is you ended up getting a position at food and wine before even hearing from Bon Appetit, yeah. and just luckily, you got a call from them. They had conversations with you about the new position. It kind of sounded like they built it in a way for you, right? Like, hey, we have this new position. I don't know if it was necessarily built for me. I, I think it was just a new role that happened to, they just realized that- It was needed. The climate of, of where they were was was changing, and they, they were just looking, just having the force, like, hey, it's cheaper to have a staff photographer, and sure. we want to create more web content, and this, and to yeah. hire freelancers consistently. Exactly. And then having that job offer already in the pocket, and not to say like, hey, go find a job, go find a job, and then use it to your advantage, but it kind of puts the ball in your court. Oh, for sure. Because you're like, I told them I'd start in two weeks. Yeah. I can't really wait two months. If you guys are really interested or serious about this, like, you know, I'd love to. Have continue this conversation but in a more rapid pace please because yeah. I gotta get on another bus to yeah, from exactly. Boston to New York if I have to yeah it's funny because they were playing the whole being coy thing like oh yeah we're interviewing a bunch of candidates we'll get yeah. back to you I'm like yeah but here's my deal and later I find out that I was probably the only person they interviewed um, but yeah it, it definitely put the whole ball in their court and I, I honestly think if I didn't have that job offer I possibly might not be here or mm-hmm. things would have taken much longer like it I think it would be slightly different from where I am. Food and wine is is not in New York, is it? Food and wine is in New York. Okay. Yeah. You moved? Did you move permanently after school to New York um, once you got the job for BA? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I once again I crashed my aunt's couch. Bless her for being so patient, <laughs> just letting me be a bum. But uh, I stayed there and I saved the money, saved money until I could afford an apartment, mm-hmm. and then yeah, moved out to Brooklyn. You mentioned before. Uh, before we started, you live in Crown Heights now. Mm-hmm. Has that always been the area you kind of uh, lived in? That was the first, my first apartment that I moved into was in Crown Heights and I've stayed since, yeah. I don't think I've had really a lot of guests from Crown Heights. What's the area like? Uh, it's definitely, I, I mean, prior to moving there, I'd never been there. Mm-hmm. I just kind of went there because it was cheaper. I'm like, oh, this is close to Manhattan. It's definitely has its own identity. It's, it subsists of basically three demographics, uh, the West Indian and Caribbean community, uh, the Orthodox Jewish community and just Brooklyn millennials um, <laughs> trying to find cheap rent. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but it's definitely changed a lot in the past, I don't know, three years since I moved and it, it's nice. It's, it's definitely nice. It, it has a neighborhood feel to it. It's close to work. Um, 
and there's good food and yeah, great vibes over there. Where where are some of the spots to uh, to hit up for food? Um, I love Hearts, but it's technically Bed Stuy. Okay, uh, but Hearts is great. I'll allow it. I'll yeah. allow you know a little it's bit. Like, it's like a five minute walk from my apartment. You know, <laughs> um, I love this other place called Gen G E N. It's a Japanese spot, basically run by these like Japanese girls with dreads, and they just like play like rock in there and it's very very Japanese when you go in there I love it and it's very homey uh, Barbancino is great for pizza um, Gold is also great for coffee and pastries as well so it's like really yeah when it's cold out like this like, I find I'm very I'm also I feel yeah. like I'm very warm yeah um, but like dude a bowl of just warm broth like during especially during the winter I can, I can I've kind of learned to do it during the summer yeah. as well like yeah. I just love it I don't know. Like, people say like hot liquids cool you down and it doesn't for oh, me. I, I'm, I don't know about that. <laughs> it's like a weird myth that people keep trying to push. I'm like, do it. It'll cool you. I'm like, that's not true. That is bullshit. Yeah. Uh, so ramen, I like ramen. I like both. It's just that ramen, I think it's a little too rich for me. And mm-hmm. also I feel like with any ramen spot in New York City that I've seen or other cities, it's just always a two hour wait. And I don't want to wait two hours for a bowl of noodles. Shit. Um, and this is the first, you know. I think everyone on on the podcast so far has been heavily sided to ramen. Yeah. Maybe that's because I'm. I would say that I'm a ramen guy, but sure. I'm, I also very much enjoy pho. Yeah. I, I I if I had to pick between the two, I would definitely pick pho. I love Vietnamese food. Pho is just it, it tastes cleaner. I I don't, I don't. I would agree with that. I won't feel gross after mm-hmm. eating a bowl of pho. Um, I think people don't give it enough credit. There's like, oh, it's so simple, and it's like. I guess just it's not as visually sexy. Sure. But the broth is a little bit more, more like clear, yeah, less yeah. colors. Got sliced meat in there, which is so yeah. delicious. It can be so rich and so simple. Yeah. You've been uh, at Bon Appetit now for how many years? Four and a half years. In May, it'll be five. Wow. Yeah. Congrats. Um, what is like your, what's your day to day? You know, what now that you're, you're not a junior staff you're you're like the staff photographer now. We now have two staff photographers. There's for I think for a good three and a half years it was just me, but now we have another staff photographer who helps out. Mm. But there's no it, it's really hard to describe a day to day because I don't have a day to day. Everything is just so unpredictable. Some days I'll be in the office editing or doing expenses. The other day I'll be like, hey, you're going to Korea to shoot a story. Um, Dope. Like two days from now. <laughs> or I'm shooting in either in this studio or I'm shooting in another studio in Brooklyn or in Midtown or shooting at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's always very last minute and unpredictable. I, I, you know, as a designer and having worked on websites and magazines, there's always a relationship with photographers, you know, naturally, you know, getting imagery and things like that. What's that relationship here at Bonaparte? Are you thinking about those things when you're, uh, taking pictures for an editorial layout or for the website, you know, what's what's your mindset while you're going through a shoot? Are those considerations, you know, are are you working with an art director, or designer on on set and f- for things like that? So generally for shoots, prior to any bigger shoots, I will consult with my creative director, mm-hmm. Michelle Outland, who's great. I've learned so much from her. She's so talented and just like she's a genius in her in at what she does. Um, but then we'll often sit down and discuss direction and how to shoot something. And I assume that as she's discussing this with me, she talks to her team of designers and art directors on how to, on what to expect and how these two mm-hmm. things can be cohesive. I, I believe that design is so, so important. It, I, I think they're, they don't get enough credit 
in the mag, like especially at Bon FT, I feel like they don't get enough credit, and their design, our our designers are so talented. They like even if my my name is on the byline, all the art directors don't. None of the art directors or designers get their name on there, just on the mass end. Mm-hmm. But I truly believe that great design can save a bad photo. Bad design will just destroy a good photo. Sure. Um, but yeah, I have a good relationships with our designers, and. I, when shooting, I definitely try to keep in mind the consideration of what they need. If they have any requests, they'll tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, but you guys are working very closely together, obviously. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, there's plenty of situations where you're just like, yeah, we're gonna get the images from a photographer. Yeah. And there's no conversation before that or anything. Yeah. They're just like, yeah, we want you to shoot this <laughs> and like send it to us, and yeah. that's it. So I, I can hear you. it could be kind of tough. I think that's definitely the main benefit of being on staff. Because mm-hmm. if I am assigned a story, I can either go down to talk to Michelle or talk to Chris or Krista and just say, hey, what, what's, your, what's your thoughts on this? Do you have any ideas? Is there any specific thought, uh, specific uh, shoot that, shot that you're imagining? And yeah, I'll, I'll have a much better idea of how I should shoot something. I would say that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I've, I'm familiar with Bon Appetit like prior to being in media and things like that. Like, I've seen the magazine in, in, in stores and I've picked it up before I think graduating college and stuff like that. So I think I have a, a good idea of the visual kind of direction that it was always going into, mm-hmm. which is, you know, in the last five years, you've been a big component of that. Mm-hmm. How do you think it's evolved since starting? Because I look at your photography and I look at your images and it's very much part of like the brand skeleton, the way the images are photographed, the way they're kind of the contrast, like all those, like all that art direction, like how has your style contributed to that conversation mm-hmm. of the brand and, and shaping that? And, you know, how has it evolved since becoming a, you know, becoming staff here? I or, appreciate that. Um, honestly, I, I feel like that for the first two, two and a half years, I didn't really have a voice. I was again. I was just trying to struggling to learn uh, how to shoot and learn how to be a good photographer. I didn't really shoot anything much in print for the first two and a half years, and I shot a lot of web and like shot a lot of product shots. I would always see like the big time food photographers on set and like look from afar. I'm like, oh my god, maybe one day I can be like them <laughs> and shoot on these like shoot these cool feature stories, but. I'm very, very thankful for my old creative director, Alex Grossman, who who is the old creative director before Michelle. He, him and Alex Pollock really just decided to take me under and just kind of, you ever watch Whiplash? No. What's that? It's this movie about jazz um, with (laughs) Chazelle. Um, But it's basically just like about really drilling in and being good at your craft. And like on some level, like, yeah, Grossman was really tough on me, but I think for the better. There'd be a couple of times where I would consider, like, am I good at this? Is this something I should be doing? But I think the tough love aspect of what he did just made me, hey, let's get it, let's get my shit together and just respond to that and just get better and better every day. Um, but yeah, for, for, for a while, I didn't feel particularly confident in how I shot. I didn't really know how to light. I didn't... I. Yeah, I just felt a little lost. But after a certain point, just the more and more shoots I did, I just kind of felt more confident, felt more comfortable being on set. There were a couple stories that Alex Pollock took a chance 
on me with. And even if Grossman was like, oh, maybe he's not right for her. He's, he's, he's still too young, still inexperienced. Alex Pollock would just be like, give it, give it to Lau. Lau can handle it. Let's send him off to San Francisco to shoot the story about burritos. That's awesome. Which is hard because, yeah, yeah like you, you would think that that's a good story, but imagine shooting a burrito. It, it, it's just a tortilla, like wrap. And it's just a baby. Yeah, it's it's, it's not particularly in foil. It's it's no grain bowl, you know. Yeah. But yeah, so they send me in stories like that where I just shoot, you know, the Mission District and shoot a bunch of taquerias, and I use my I don't know instinct and just. I, I honestly, it was a lot of fear. It's like fear-based creativity. I was like, okay, like I, I can't mess this up. They're sure. taking a chance on me. They're sending me out to San Francisco to shoot this big feature story. Let's just go out there and execute. Um, and they also sent me out to Korea to shoot this fried chicken story. And I think these two stories, the burrito story and the Korean fried chicken story, was where I really got to just create my own voice. And it was really good because neither – uh, both times they never really gave me specific direction for the story so it was just up to me to go out there and trust myself and just do my own thing and hope that they like the story but yeah those were those are definitely like the two most formative assignments that I think set forth how I wanted to shoot was there were there any kind of uh, things that you were doing outside of maybe work that were that you were either like inspiration, like looking at things. Were you, were you going out and shooting more often to try and start like feeling more confident in those in those processes? Like, what was you know, was there any kind of practice that you were doing? Even though it's it's kind of weird to label it as practice, but in a sense, just like you know, you're going out and practicing your craft. You're doing it over and over again so you can get better. I never. I feel like I've been saying for the past five years that I I should take more and more side projects to to like develop my mind and get more creativity and inspiration but I just haven't done it because my job is so busy but there were a lot of late nights uh, being here at the studio doing test shots just like trying to figure out how to light something asking my photographer friends that I liked and admire I'm like hey how would you do this like how did you do th- how did you like this specific thing what are some techniques that you like that that you think I should learn yeah it, it, there, there was definitely no no specific practice but I think it was more so just being sent on assignment after assignment and just getting better and going from hearing your photo director and creative director say we don't like this why did you shoot like this to being them being oh yeah you did great and or or going beyond that and them expecting you to be great every time Mm. which was very very comforting after a certain point yeah I like to ask everyone that I have on here who's a creative at some point like you know are there designers photographers or like things out there that you look at as for inspiration you know like I use the example of a a designer I know loves to look at architecture for composition Mm -hmm. you know for his designs and things like that is there any place or something that you kind of look to to uh, pull inspiration from Mm -hmm. yeah people tend to ask me oh who's your favorite food photographer I'm like I don't have one. I I, I kind of approach. I don't like to ask yeah. like, "Hey, you're a food photographer. Yeah. What's your favorite?" You yeah. know, like I know that's tough, and I I think when you're creative, you can understand like, yes, I'm a designer. I love. Uh, there's definitely designers that I love. Yeah. But I also like, I am taking from that example of like looking at architecture now for like color. You yeah. know, like looking at exactly. like really weird places because you find like really interesting moments mm-hmm. that you if you look at it and understand it it makes you that much better for understanding why they used it in that situation yep. and when you could use it in yours mm-hmm. versus like, yeah, I look at 
this designer and take exactly what he does because then you're just kind of like regurgitating yeah I, I think I find it's kind of how comedians don't watch each other's sets because they don't want to steal anything I, that's kind of the same approach I mean like first off I, I don't want to look at food photography I spend all, my entire day <laughs> in life shooting it I don't want to look yeah. at more but also it's, yeah I don't want to accidentally take steal someone's idea even if it's like intentional or not I don't want to do that but I tend to watch a lot of movies I, I really like just how cinematography works. It, it's it's a very fascinating craft to me. I think in some like alternate life, I, I would have wanted to be a cinematographer, but the whole I'm cut. saving a chunk of my life to get back to to get into film. <laughs> Two years from now, I'll, you'll see me trying to get uh, an Emmy. But no, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's it's just the way from everything from like framing to which lenses they want to use for a specific shot, or just like the way uh, how they'll treat. Uh, color treat as, as like the movie mm -hmm. that that's also important and I get a lot a lot of inspiration from that architecture as well is very inspiring to me I don't know how and people often talk to me like what's your creative process what do you do before I'm like I don't have a creative process I don't know it's like <laughs> show up yeah and I arrange things and I take the picture yeah and, and there's a lot of things where like something as mundane as I don't know going to the supermarket or maybe going to uh, a bookstore or, or going to a farm. I don't know. That might inspire me. Or going to the park and just like watching some pigeons eat. I don't know how my brain is processing it, but it's like I, I, I am a big proponent of, hey, live your life and some ideas will come to you. But I, yeah, it's, it's not like, I wish I could say, hey, I'm looking at these specific photographers. I'm, I'm going to art museums and, and I'm eating all these fancy restaurants and getting inspiration from that. But it's like, that's, that's, that's just not the case. Well, I mean, kind of like you said, you know, you don't look at food photographers, you don't want to steal ideas. Yeah. All of those things that you just said are like all in the same vein of like making art. Mm -hmm. So it's like when you look at art, you make, you're just going to make more of the same art in a sense. Yeah. So it's like get out there kind of, you know, I agree. Like I, I, it's weird when you go on vacation sometimes and you're like, oh yeah, I'm not going to do any work, yeah. but you're just like constantly thinking about ideas and they're just like, all right, I got to write this down. Yeah, and just exactly. somehow it just happens. I yeah. think it's different for people. I'm sure you're similar because as you mentioned, like, yeah, going to the park and watching pigeons eat is a simple task. You're not making anything. Your hands aren't moving, but your brain is like probably going a thousand miles. You're just like, oh, that's, that would be a great idea if I did this. Yeah, exactly. It happens. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that I've had trouble with. Like, I, I, I think I've only recently come to terms with understanding that creativity isn't linear. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't, you don't get more and more creative every day. And if anything, it's, it's very much peaks and valleys or sometimes a plateau. And initially when I, I would reach points where I feel like I'm being less creative, or I'm not, I'm not any more creative than I was before, I would freak out. And I'm like, I'm like okay, like, my one commodity, like, what I have to offer is isn't getting better or, or, or uh, it might disappear and I'm no, I'll no longer be valued. But I've just, yeah, I've just come to accept it. Like, hey, it comes and goes sometimes. And like, you just kind of have to live your life and it'll come to you mm -hmm. or talk to more people. And like, I don't know, maybe, maybe a simple trip is like going to my grandma's house could spark crazy. Totally. You know, grandma's always got the best ideas. Anyway. She really does. <laughs> um, what's the vibe in the, in the BA kitchen? You know, I, I, I watch the YouTube. I watch Bon Appetit on YouTube. I watch the shows with Andy and um, all the time when they do like the pastry chef that shot. She, she just did the video for the Pringles. Claire. Claire yeah. She's great. Uh, Brad, you know, what What are you guys, uh, you know, are you in the kitchen a lot? Because I know you travel, but like, are you hanging around these people a lot? I'm actually in the kitchen a fair decent amount because yeah. especially since I'm in the studio that's on the same floor as the kitchen, I'm 
literally oh, yeah. 10 for, feet away. I forgot it's the door next to yeah. us. <laughs> exactly. Um, what's the vibe like? It's, it's very fun. Yeah. It's so fun. And uh, Claire no longer works at Bon Appetit, but she still comes in and does the videos. But uh, it's a good energy. Brad, Brad is exactly how I would imagine. <laughs> Just like this Jersey fisherman that came straight out of a Springsteen video. <laughs> um Exactly. Yeah. And uh, Claire is just so precise, but so kind hearted. And she's an angel. And like all of her food is so delicious. Andy is just this manic energy that is just so talented, but such a diva. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just like a good environment of good people. And it's, it's definitely not like being in a restaurant kitchen I'm, I'm sure some people think it is but it's it's much more relaxed people that chefs that come in were like wow it's it's so chill in here and it's yes yeah, obviously there are times it can get crazy but it's it's a very good energy a lot of laughs um people always like trying to create the best food that they can mm. um yeah it's a fun time um i want to kind of switch gears a little bit i know we mentioned a little bit at the beginning that maybe People wouldn't know off the bat, but like you said, you do competitive powerlifting. Mm -hmm. How is that going? I, you recently did you recently compete? I think I saw yeah, you I were training last for that. in October. So yes, I am a competitive powerlifter. Mm -hmm. It's it's really it's it's fun. It's just that the two worlds could not be more different. <laughs> like, you know, like some days I'll be uh, shooting some nice restaurant. I'll shoot a Stella something, or something very delicate, delicate, or just like <laughs> being in like a, a surrounded by creatives and like arty people. And the next day I'll be in the boonies of Jersey as Bon Jovi's blasting on the speakers <laughs> and like everybody's huffing ammonia and like trying to squat big. Um, very different demographics. And I, I kind of like that. But yeah, I've been powerlifting. I, funnily enough, I started powerlifting around the same time that I started uh, working at Bon Appetit. Mm. I kind of got into it because I, I'd done a lot of sports in high school. Um, and I, I, like, I'm not a particularly outright competitive person but mm -hmm. I need a competitive outlet and so when I was in college I also I just went to the gym and it, it was just a workout and after a certain point it just got kind of boring to me and I uh, was looking at my numbers for squat squats and bench and I'm like oh like this is actually quite my numbers are actually quite close or competitive for a powerlifting meet and granted back then powerlifting was a lot less competitive than it is now and I was just looking at like the age division, but I was like, oh, like I could take a state record in Massachusetts for the 19-year-old division. So I had it in my mind, but I just didn't have the money to like buy a nice belt or nice equipment. But once I had a job at Bon Appetit, I was like, oh, like let me let's try this out. And I had my first competition in October of 2014. I got second place, and I was like, oh wow, like this is my first competition. I got second place. Second place, yeah. first competition. Yeah. What is the what is the training leading up to that? Right? Um, like, how do you nail a second, like to get second place in anything for your first competition, there's a lot of prep and practice and training that goes into that. Sure. Right. Like you, you don't just walk in lottie dottie no. and just being like, Oh yeah, I could squat all this weight. Yeah. And just to dial back, powerlifting is the sport of the squat and the bench press and the deadlift. And basically your main objective is to total the most weight, uh, out of all three of those lifts and whoever gets the biggest total weight wins. But yeah, I, uh, I currently have a coach, but uh, his name's Sean Collins, and he runs Murder Crows Barbell out in Brooklyn. Hi, Sean. <laughs> hey, Sean. I'll see him later. It's a very systemized style of training. I he'll program often sixteen weeks out, eight weeks out. Shit. Um, 
we're often training that long, that far ahead while having a specific competition in mind. And like, there's an off season and there's an in, in competition season. And depending on that, we go hard or we go less intense. You mentioned earlier that you're traveling to Beirut. Mm-hmm. Going, uh, I think I'm going to Lebanon like two weeks from now. And that's, that's for assignment for Bon Appetit. Mm-hmm. Other, where are the other places you've traveled? Uh, a big majority of it tends to be domestic. Mm. I was in Lebanon. I did a story in Portugal, uh, Korea, and I think I went to London. And then basically every, almost every city imaginable in, in the United States. So you've pretty much hit up all 50. I wouldn't say all 50, but like a lot of like smaller cities that you wouldn't think of, like San Antonio. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty dope. Yeah. Um, what do you have planned other than this trip to, to Beirut? You know, what do you, we just coming out of the new year. Do you have like any New Year's resolutions or are you trying to kind of, you know, you have one objective this year that you're trying to tackle? I'm not really one for New Year's resolutions, but I, I just, just want to do a good job, take on bigger and better projects and be the best photographer that I can be. And I don't know, be, be yeah, I get, maybe be better at managing workload. I feel like I'm pretty good at that now, but you know, it can, it can always be more streamlined. Where can uh, where can people find your work? Where can they stay in touch with you? Where are you online? I actually don't have a website. So I guess if you want to see my work, buy Bone Appetit Magazine and grow, go on the website or go on healthyish.com. If you want to keep in touch with me, you can go on my Instagram. It's not really any of my professional work. I think your Instagram is quite satisfying though because it's like traveling, it's food. It sums up, you know, it's very much like your brand of what you do and like what you believe in, what we've kind of talked about mm-hmm. today. So um, I would say that's a that's a really good place as well. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think of it more as a visual diary mm-hmm. versus like, oh, here's my professional because I don't really post much of it there. Yeah, but you can also, yeah, you can also follow me in there. Just yeah, if you want to keep in touch, like message me or leave a comment. Awesome. Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on this episode of Well-Fed. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Well Fed. This podcast is produced by me, John Sarantino, out in Jersey City, New Jersey, and made possible by all the amazing people that agree to be my guest on this thing. Music and editing is done by my friend Kevin Bendis out in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. If you have any suggestions for guests that you'd like to hear from, you can go ahead and DM me on Instagram at wellfedpodcast. Feel free to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more stories from creative leaders, entrepreneurs, and talented individuals just like yourself. Or you can go to the website wellfedpodcast.com for more episodes. Again, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye!